Hello, my name is Aida Andres, and I'm an associate professor at the UCL Genetics Institute at the University College London. And my work aims to help us understand how populations adapt to their environment. Um, this is populations that adapt to the particular environments or how species evolve to adapt uh, to where they live. And we're also very interested in understanding how these past evolutionary events influence individuals living today, because those past adaptations, of course, remain in our genomes. Um, I'm going to talk about humans today and just try to understand how did humans appear and colonize the world. And this is an interesting question for a number of reasons. So human evolution is interesting because, well, it's interesting for us. We care about humans. Um, it's always nice to know something about our origins um, and our evolution. But also humans are a very interesting species. Within the animal kingdom, we are pretty unique. So we have traits that no other species have, like for starters, we have cognitive abilities that allow us to present some work or listen to presentations, um, and that is really unique. So it is very interesting to understand how did these characteristics come to live? How were, what were the evolutionary events that allowed us to, to just have all of these amazing uh, capabilities? Also, humans are pretty unique in that we have colonize basically the whole world. Most species live in particular uh, regions, and there are very few species that are cosmopolitan, meaning that they live everywhere in the world like we do. Even within the primates, this is unique. We are the only primates that live everywhere. And even other human forms that lived before modern humans, before us, they also lived in particular areas. So we are the only primates actually that live everywhere. And what is interesting to me is to think that Somehow, our evolution probably allowed us to have traits that uh, allowed us or even compelled us to migrate and migrate and migrate and explore, find new territories and colonize them. And at the same time, the fact that we have moved around and live in all of these different places has meant that we have to adapt, we had to adapt to those environments, and that in turn has influenced our own evolution. So this is the, the, the characteristic of living everywhere is not only a consequence of our evolution, but also causes um, evolutionary um, events. And I would argue that besides being interesting, understanding our all evolution is important because of course those past adaptations live today in our genomes. And because our genomes encode everything that we are almost, so our physical traits, um, then those adaptations live today in the genomes of people. They, they make us how we are. They define how we live in this environment, how we metabolize food, how we fight pathogens, how we respond to cold weather. And also, they influence our disease risk. So anything that has to do with the evolution of our traits is potentially linked to the, to, to the present risk susceptibility differences that there are between individuals and between populations, or between individuals that live in different populations. So let's start with the very beginning of uh, the origin of humans. So I think if I ask you what is the most recent, uh, so what's the, the most uh, closely living species to humans, I think most people would uh, correctly identify chimpanzees as our closest living relatives. And this is true, but it's slightly more complicated. There are two species that we are very closely related to, that is the chimpanzees and the bonobos. The bonobos are less known uh, 
at least uh, for general public. They have a small population size, and they're really interesting, mostly because of the behavior. So the bonobos, even though they are very, very similar to chimpanzees, they live in female-dominated societies with very low levels of violence and with just a peaceful um, relationship between individuals largely, not, not completely, but largely. And that's in sharp contrast with the chimpanzees, maybe with the humans, depending how you think about it. Um, so humans shared a common ancestor with the bonobos and the chimpanzees only four to six million years ago. That is a really short amount of time in evolutionary terms. We share most of our biology, most of our physiology, and actually 99% of our genomes. So if you sequence the genome of a human, the genome of a, of a chimpanzee, and you compare the bases or the letters, 99% of them are identical. In many branches of life, two subspecies from the same species are more different than we are to, the, to, to chimpanzees and bonobos. But of course, we're not considered the same species. Uh, beyond chimpanzees and bonobos, the other great apes, which is our family, are the gorillas and the orangutans. And one interesting aspect of, of the relationships that matters for my talk today is that while humans live everywhere cosmopolitan, all of the other great apes live in really restricted areas. And that is partly now because of human, um, because, because human is, is just reducing their habitat, but it has always been the case, we believe. They live in relatively uh, limited areas. Um, all the subspecies of all of the species of the great apes, except for humans, are endangered. So we are really bringing them to extinction, actually. Um, and actually, there are other great apes that have gone extinct before, some of them very close to us, um, actually. So Neanderthals are uh, very close relative to humans, so to modern humans. So it's another form of, of humans that lived uh, for many thousand years in Eurasia. We know a lot about them because they left a lot of remains. Um, so we have a very good sense about where they lived, and, and uh, we know that they coexisted with humans. There are other forms of humans that are less well known, and my favorites are the Denisovans. The Denisovans, we didn't know that they existed until some geneticists sequenced a pinky bone or, that they found, and then they identify a completely new family of humans that we didn't know existed. And actually, there are not very, not very many known remains of Denisovans, but we know existed because genetically we can see that this is a population that is close to Neanderthals but different. And actually, even though they are both extinct, uh, they coexisted with humans temporarily. So they lived in at the same time in some of the same areas. We know they met, and we didn't know that they liked each other enough to mate and actually have babies. So there has been interbreeding between them too. So many, many, many modern humans now have segments of the genome of Neanderthal or Denisova origin. So some part of your genome that comes, that one day was either in an Neanderthal or in an Denisovan. This is really fascinating, but I won't go into the details uh, of this, but they've also disappeared. So right now, um, yeah, the only uh, human form um, existing is modern humans. So focusing on them, uh, let's think a little bit about our evolution. So we know that humans evolved in Africa. This map suggests in South Africa, but it's not clear, very likely to be East Africa. But we know that humans, from that common ancestor with chimps and bonobos, we evolved 
in Africa, with a lot of movement within Africa, and only in the last 50 to 100,000 years, humans successfully colonized on African environments. So they started moving, probably small groups of humans moving, and then migrating a bit, and then migrating a bit more. And over thousands of years, they ended up colonizing the whole world. This is actually a very quick process, even though it's thousands of years, but this is a really good, quick process. So this African origin and out-of-Africa migration, that's the name of this, of this migration process, it's really important because it has a lot of uh, effects on our um, population and our genetic uh, differentiation between populations. So the first is that the origins of all humans is Africa, right? We all have, uh, or we all have ancestors that lived in Africa. The second one is that variation in Africa, genetic and phenotypic variation in Africa, is larger than outside of Africa. And the reason for this is because you have a whole bunch of individuals in Africa, they have some variation, then you have small pockets of those moving outside of Africa, and they are taking the, the genetic variation with them, but a lot of the variation that doesn't move stays in Africa. So for example, it is not unlikely that, two, uh, that there's more genetic difference between two villages in Africa than between two, pe two people or two populations in different continents out of Africa. And that's because a lot of the variation is in Africa. And the, the, the third effect, maybe, or there are a number of them, but an important effect is that humans are highly homogeneous. Because this is a very recent event of just colonizing the world and just a very relatively recent origin. As a species, compared to many other species, and even compared to many other great apes, were highly homogeneous. So we are genetically and phenotypically similar. This means both in our genes and in our traits, we are very similar, even though we do see differences and we believe that they are very important, but, but quantitatively, they are really not. And this is both within and across populations. So if you take, for example, the genome of two people and compare it, on average, only one of every thousand bases, so the letters of the genome, differ between any pair of individuals. So at the genetic level, we are extremely similar, and of course the phenotype is no more than, than um, an expression of that. Another interesting statistic is that of those differences that we see between populations, 90% vary within populations and only 10% between them. So if we compare people within the same population or in two populations, the vast majority of the diversity that we have, you have it between people that live in the same population, and there's only a few uh, differences that are different between them. So if we were to represent this, uh, this would be the level of diversity that we see within populations, and there's a little bit, there are differences between populations, obviously, right, but they are a minority. And just a tiny little point to say, that even these 10% do not represent biological differences among what people would consider races. Races are a social construct. I'm not gonna discuss them, but they are not a biological entity. And even this 10% doesn't, doesn't correspond at all with what people would consider a race. So the final point that I want to say that it's a strong um, effect of our demographic history is that because as a species we evolved in Africa, we are, were very well adapted to living there. 
Yeah, so we have evolved for millions of years in Africa, adapted very well to that environment, and then very quickly we moved um, outside of Africa. That mean, what that means is that all of these new environments, they differ drastically, right? So they have different temperatures, different pathogens, they have different diets, you have to do things differently in order to get food, and humans had a very strong, um, um, were very strongly pressure to adapt to those different environments. We know that culture has been important because of course we are unique, we have culture, and culture has allowed us to, to adapt to those environments, but we also know that, it's, that there has been strong pressure to adapt biologically, and we know that humans have adapted biologically. And this is just actually what I wanted to discuss uh, today. So, how do humans adapt to the local environment? How does this process work? And how do we learn about those adaptations? So adaptation happens by natural selection, which is a very old concept uh, from Darwin that is based on the idea of fitness. And the idea is that individuals that are better fit for their environment, meaning typically that they are better able to survive in that environment or better able to reproduce or both, those that are better fit are gonna have more offspring. If the trait that is beneficial is heritable, so for example, if it's genetic, then those, in those that offspring, it's gonna have that trait, they're gonna also be better fit, they have more offspring and so on. So over time, you're increasing the frequency of beneficial traits and the other way around. If there are traits that are deleterious, that reduce the fitness of individuals, slowly they're gonna reduce in frequency in the population. And that is how populations adapt. There are different types of natural selection, but this very classical type is called positive selection because it's a positive effect where you're increasing the frequency of an efficient allele. So let's very quickly go over what you expect to see if you have a trait where you have two forms. We have an orange form here and a, and a green one. And let's say this is neutral. Neutral means it doesn't affect the phenotype. It has no, sorry, it doesn't affect the fitness of the individuals. So it doesn't affect, um, it won't be under natural selection because it has no effect on fitness. It can have phenotypic effects, but it doesn't affect fitness. Okay, so what's gonna happen from one generation to the next? These individuals are gonna reproduce, and then they reproduce, and so on. And there's some variation, right? It's not that always everybody has the same number of offspring. So in some generation, maybe there are two greens, um, and because we're keeping the population size stable, that there are gonna be only three oranges, but then in the next generation, this might change and so on. So over time, there's very little, there is change in frequencies, but it's not very, very much or very quick. Now we have positive selection. Imagine that the green um, trait is beneficial. It increases the fitness. Well, it's gonna have more offspring. So in the next generation, there are gonna be more green individuals, and the next one, more green individuals, and so on, up until a point where either almost all of the individuals in the population, or actually often all of the individuals in the population are green, and now we've gone from a situation where under neutral evolution, you are in a situation that's very similar to the old one, and under positive selection, almost everybody is green. Now, if this trait is encoded in our genes, this is exactly the same thing if we think about the variants in the genome. So if you have a variant that determines whether you are orange or green, under neutrality, it's not gonna change very much in frequency over time. But under positive selection, the variant that encodes for the beneficial allele is gonna increase in frequency very, very much. 
So you're going to see this difference over time. So how do we look at this in genomes? Well, now, because of technical advancements, we can sequence thousands and thousands of genomes very easily and actually quite cheap, quite cheap. So you can go and have a sample of genomes from whatever population you decide. You extract the DNA, you do some sequencing with them, and you read the genome. So you're going to read every single of the bases of the genome, A, G, uh, C, and T, for every individual. Now you have these thousands of, of sequences, one next to the other, and you can start identifying the genetic variants. So here, what we have is this individual has T in its two chromosomes here, and the other individuals have a C. We call this a genetic, uh, well, so we're going to encode that as a T um, chromosome. So this is a variant. It's a position in the genome where if you compare individuals, some people have one uh, letter and some people have another one. And those are the two alleles. This is how we call the variant, these, these two numbers. So the two alleles are allele C and allele T. And we can count how many times we observe this in our sample. We observe it two out of five, sorry, two out of 10. Um, so the frequency of the T allele is 20%. And because we are now able to sequence lots and lots of genomes and full genomes, actually, we can do this across the genome and say, well, we have this genetic variant that has this frequency. And every, for every single position in the genome that is variable across humans, we can establish which is the frequency in the population. And we can do this for this population, and we can do this for a number of other populations. So this is really helpful in understanding um, evolutionary history. And almost necessary to understand adaptations. And as I said, we have now thousands of genomes across, uh, from people across the world. And actually, it's so easy that if I have a good internet connection, I can just download thousands of genomes into my computer. They are freely available. Um, and it's, um, once you know how to deal with them, it's, it's really easy. We also have hundreds of genomes from old human remains. These are remains from dead people from a few hundred to many thousand years old that we can also sequence from the bones and we can also analyze. And we have also genomes from archaic humans, sorry. So the Neanderthals and the Denisovans that I told you, well, people get that pinky, as I said, and you have the genome and you can analyze it. So we use all of this information in order to infer um, evolutionary history. So let's just look at the toy example of our green and orange. Let's imagine that we are looking at a population in Africa. It doesn't matter where it is. Just, this is just a toy example where we have this green allele um, that is neutral. And then it has a certain frequency in the population. Humans migrate around the world. If this is neutral, it's not going to change in frequency very much across populations, but there's going to be some difference. And now let's imagine that the green allele is highly beneficial in the British and Irish um, islands. So it has increased in frequency very much in this population because it encodes for some trait that is beneficial there. But it's not beneficial anywhere else. So it's only increasing frequency there. So what we would say is that this population is genetically adapted to its local environment. So this is what we mean by local adaptation. Not all humans carry that trait, or, they, or these populations have it at very low frequencies, but it's really common in this population, and that's because that trait is adaptive. Now, we usually use pie charts because it's just easier to, to see, and you can see that there's just a very strong difference between these two. So 
what is happening here is if I came to you and I told you, you know, I'm studying this genetic variant, we have been sequencing genomes or we have been getting genomes from, from, um, from existing databases and we just calculated the allele frequencies and this is what we observe. After I just told you that humans are so homogeneous and that allele frequencies don't change very much, you would probably tell me either you're into something, there's something interesting here, right? Um, and you would be right. So what we're doing is using the fact that these genetic variants show striking differences in allele frequency between populations in order to say this is a hint that this site has been uh, mediating adaptation to the environment. That's what we call a signature. So this is a pattern in the data that you don't expect under neutral evolution and you expect under selection. So if you see one of these, well, you maybe believe that maybe there's, you're into something. If you see several patterns that you expect under, under positive selection only, under local adaptation only, then you would become more and more convinced that really this particular variant has been mediating adaptation to this environment. And that is actually what we do every day. We use the signatures of local adaptation. And the reason we have to do this is because we cannot observe the past, we don't know what, when, what happened. We're starting to have ancient DNA, but we really cannot offer, observe the processes. We cannot experiment in humans. We don't, cannot see who has higher fitness or lower fitness in which environment. So we have to rely on these signatures that positive selection, this footprint that selection leaves. In the same way that if you go to the beach and you see some footprints um, on it, you can make inferences about whether somebody has been walking here, in which direction they were going, how long ago maybe they have been here, how big their foot is, which maybe tells you something about their size. In the same way, we, we use all of these signatures of selection in order to make inferences about what has happened in the past, and then try to understand why. What are the environmental factors that are responsible for that? What are the consequences today of those adaptations? And again, there's a number of different signatures. I'm focusing only on allele frequency today just for simplicity, but we use many more, more sophisticated uh, signatures. And actually, these signatures not only allow us to identify the variants of genes that have evolved under positive selection, but also learn something about the evolutionary uh, forces. So for example, if I, I give you this map, then there's not a lot of information here, but if we have some more money and then we spend some more time studying this, this variant and we see a pattern like this, where really this pattern is very, very different here, then we know most likely these populations have adapted to a very local selective force, an environmental force that is very unique to these populations. If we do the same and we observe a pattern where at high latitudes all of the populations have a similar pattern, that means that they are probably sharing that environmental factor. And for example here, well you could say maybe it's something to do with cold, where these populations share um, that particular environmental factor. And it's important because if this variant also um, has an influence, for example, on disease, right, so the predisposition to disease, oh sorry, in this case, would be, well, these populations are different from the rest of the world, but here we would expect them to share some predisposition. So now that we hopefully understand how these processes happen and how we can learn about them, even though we cannot study them as, as they happen, I would like to discuss how did uh, genetic adaptation help humans colonize the world. 
So the first thing that I want to say, I won't go into the details, but we do know that genetic adaptation did help humans colonize the world. If you look at the genome scale, at the whole genome, you do see this pattern of local adaptation. We know it has been important. As I said, culture is important, but biological adaptation also exists. So I want to give you a hint of which ones are the adaptations that we think are more important or interesting or we know better about, and their consequences today. So perhaps the most famous adaptation um, that we know of is not a local adaptation, but it's a very important adaptation, which is to diet. There, and there's, there are several uh, known examples of adaptation to diet. Diet is obviously very important. You need to be very well nourished uh, in order to, to just survive and have offspring. But adaptation to, um, so to consuming milk into adulthood is one of the most famous ones. So in most species of mammals, adults are unable to digest milk. And that is because, well, once you can eat food, then why would you eat milk, no? You can get uh, your nutrition from food, your mom can have another baby, you never drink uh, milk again. And that happens once you become older, then you stop producing the enzymes that you need in order to digest milk. Now, many adults in many uh, human uh, societies are actually able to digest milk, due to the continued expression of lactase. So lactase is an enzyme that allows us to metabolize the, uh, the sugars in the milk. And we, many, many of us continue to um, express this and to have lactase uh, well into adulthood and we can drink milk. And not everybody can, right? Many of us cannot drink milk. But this is unique in the, in the animal uh, kingdom, at least as far as I know. Um, so the lactase gene has some of the strongest signatures of local adaptation in the whole human genome. And actually, I say one of the strongest, and it's the one that we always use as a classical example because it's so clear. It, uh, in Europe, it appeared very recently, um, maybe 2,000 years ago, we don't know exactly, but really recently, it increased in frequency very quickly to the point to be in the major, majority um, the majority of individuals in many European populations can digest milk. What is interesting is that the alleles that maintain expression of lactase that allow us to consume milk into adulthood have appeared in European and in African pastoralists. And those are actually different. So mutations appear in these two, in these two locations that, are, that con continue lactase are persisting, and they were under positive selection, so in both which means we have different societies right now that can consume milk into adulthood. And where this was beneficial, completely independently. And of course, many other societies don't, don't share this. What we don't know for sure is why is milk so important, right? So of course, it's a good source of nutrition. And once you've learned to, to domesticate cows or, or other mammals, then that is a good source of, of nutrition. But milk is also uh, source of clean water for those who don't have clean water. So we're not 100% sure uh, of what is the reason why milk is so strong or consuming milk into adulthood is so strongly selected. But it is very clear that this is what uh, it was beneficial. And actually, there are other adaptations to diet that I won't talk about, but diet is clearly a very important selective force. Now, another classical one, just because it's so visible, is adaptation to solar exposure. So solar exposure... There, it differs dramatically around the world with higher levels of exposure um, around the Ecuador and the lower exposure as you get farther away 
Um, and actually, this is a really important selective factor also because the sun is fantastic and we need it, but it's also quite dangerous. So if you live in regions of the world where there's high solar exposure, then you need protection because otherwise you get skin cancer very quickly. We don't have fur, we're completely exposed, right? So in those cases, it is beneficial to have a dark skin. It is not really the, it is the melanin. So how, the, how, how well your skin can protect from the sun, um, that's, that's uh, the level of, of protection. Now, if you live in places like the UK, where there's really not a lot of sun, then what happens is that you need exposure to sun to generate vitamin D because we do need the sun in order to generate it. So now you're in a situation where, well, even though you need some protection, the need for vitamin D is more important. And in those situations, then it's better to have lighter skin. And what, the, what we know has happened is that there has been some evolution so that Populations that live at higher latitudes, for example, where there's, or places where there's lower solar exposure, they have evolved to have lighter pigmentation. And actually, this has resulted in amazing diversity of skin pigmentation around the world in a really beautiful way. Uh, even people, depending where you live, there's some balance in between how much protection you need versus how much vitamin D generation you need. Um, and the, the, of course, this is very visible, one would argue maybe it's not very important for many things, but it's very clear that, that, uh, this, that, that these populations have adapted uh, to where they live. And actually, there are very, very strong signatures of positive selection for multiple genes that are responsible uh, for this. Um, of course, the consequences today are a bit uh, different. We live in a... In a in a world where we spend a lot of time indoors and so on, so the selective pressures have changed. We also maybe go on holidays to other places and then um, we have more sun. So, so of course, all of this um, has changed over time, but this is a very clear example of very strong selection for individuals to adapt to their local environment. So besides these very classical examples, I just wanted to say adaptation to pathogens is really important. And, we, and very strong, uh, there's very strong selection, of course, because pathogens will kill you, right, um, if, you, if you are sensitive to them. Um, and there are other characteristics, for example, height. So there are populations that we know have had very strong pressure to reduce the height, and it's believed that maybe in other populations um, there's selection to increase height. And there's a whole bunch of different phenotypes that have been under selection. And again, what I would like to say is, this is interesting, but also it's important in the sense that this has, the, many of these variants have consequences in health today. So as much as we understand their evolution, we will understand the reason why they exist. And if they differ between populations, that can help us understand population differences in risk. I'm going to spend a bit of time talking about adaptation to ambient temperature. And that is because I really like this example. It's very close to home. We've been working on this uh, for a number of years, but also I think it's a very nice example um, that really kind of tells a story about how important these adaptations are. So I would argue that ambient temperature one of, is one of the strongest uh, environmental factors that anybody uh, has to deal with uh, because if pathogens can kill you in a few days, well, if you cannot uh, adapt 
to, for example, very cold environment, if there's a sudden change in temperature and you don't realize, or you don't change your metabolism or your behavior, then that kills you in hours, right? So I think it's a really very strong um, selective force. But also, it varies dramatically in, in the world. So just an example, in Nigeria, the average uh, temperature across the year is 28 degrees. Now, if you go to Finland, it's six degrees. This is a huge difference, right? And this is the average across the year, yeah? I'm not talking about the winter. Um, so these are the individuals living without our modern culture in, in those two places, they really have very, very different environments. And there's a whole gradient, of course, in between them, right? So I think it's interesting to ask, have humans adapted to this? So how, let me very shortly tell you about how we sense temperature. This is a really important um, process, and actually the Nobel Prize um, for Physiology or Medicine last year was uh, awarded on the discovery of temperature and uh, touch sensors. So because it's, it's how we interact with the environment. So we sense temperature by some neurons that innervate the skin. So they come from the brain, and they innervate all of the they arrive to the skin, the mouth, and so on. And they, uh, if they activate, they tell your brain, for example, it's cold. And this is how this works. There's a number of proteins, and they are in the membranes of cells. And these are what we call ion, ion channels. So these are proteins that allow ions to go in or out of the cells. And by allowing in ions going in or out, they activate the cells that they belong to. And this family has a number of different channels, and each of them activates at different temperatures. So if it's really, really hot, then you're gonna have TRPA1 activate. It's gonna allow exchange of ions. It's gonna activate the cell where it is, and this cell is gonna tell your brain it's really very hot. And then your, this is the thermal sensation, and then your brain is gonna make you change your metabolism and maybe your behavior, yeah, depending which species you are and depending how you deal with this. If it's cold, TRPM8 is gonna do the same. It's gonna tell your brain that it's cold. And this is how, by the combination of this and the different neurons, we can know how cold it is, which as I said, I think it's, it's really critical for survival. Now, one thing that is very funny, or fun at least, about this, these uh, receptors is that they're also activated by components. So mint, for example, activates TRPM8. So when you have mint-based gum or toothpaste, and you have this feeling of freshness, that is TRPM8 activating because of mint and telling your brain, oh, it's cold. And then you believe it's cold, but it's not cold. It's just the mint activating. And actually, all of these, or many of these, are activated by other compounds. For example, this one is activated by chili pepper. So a lot of this feeling that we have of, of temperature is by the same uh, receptors that, um, that tell us about temperature. So I'm going to talk about TRPM8 because it's the only one where we know for sure that there are signatures of selection. And that's the one that we studied in my group. So TRPM8 is interesting because it's the best established cold receptor, the one that we know has a very important role um, uh, in, in cold reception in living organisms. And actually, it has mediated adaptation to cold, we believe, in some other animals. So this is not work by my group, but uh, people have 
compared for animals living in habitats at different temperatures, what is the activation level of TRPM8, this gene, not this protein, sorry. And they've studied from penguins that live in very cold environments to elephants that live in very high environments. And what we see is that the level of activation of TRPM8 increases um, with uh, temperature. Or the other way to think about, the species that live in very cold environments, they have a not very active cold receptor. And this perhaps is because, well, if you live in a very, very cold environment and you always live there and you're metabolically very well adapted to that, you don't need to constantly be feeling that it's cold because that is where you live. And you want to be able to just do your life um, without this constant uh, pressure of your brain telling you it's cold. And actually something similar happens in rodents where we non-hibernating rodents, so rodents that just keep going through the winter, they have a normally active cold receptor, while hibernators, they have a very inactive uh, receptor, very similar to the ones that live in very cold environments. And we also believe that this is uh, just to adjust uh, to temperature. So it is clear to me that, that this particular cold receptor has helped species adapt to the environment. And now the question is, okay, humans that have evolved for millions of years in very warm Africa, did they also use TRPM8 in order to adapt to living in Finland, for example? So um, I'm gonna show the allele frequencies of a genetic variant that we believe has function, although I won't talk about that. And we have here um, a number of populations from around the world. This data set is called the thousand genomes. And what you can see is that this allele has very low frequency in Africa. It has intermediate frequencies in several populations in Asia, and it has very high frequency in um, Europe. And this is really unusual, right? Like now, I think you will agree with me that there are very large allele frequency differences across populations, and this is unusual. And actually, it's unusual to the level that only 0.02% of all of the SNPs in the genome have larger allele frequency between Yoruba and Finnish. And this is just an example, but I will give you similar numbers between other pairs of population. So this is really a very unusual SNP. And actually, when we try to identify these additional signatures of local adaptation, uh, we do find there's a bunch of them. We are very, very sure that this allele has increased in frequency because of positive selection at higher latitudes. And actually, there's a significant correlation of the frequency with latitude. So if we plot latitude north and we plot the frequency of the allele, we see that as populations live in more northern environments, they have higher frequency of the allele. Um, now, this is slightly complicated and I won't go into details, but you can do analysis that allow you to take into account the fact that populations are not independent from each other. But this correlates with latitude much more than you expect under neutrality. And very, very few variants in the genome have a correlation like this. This is not what you expect. So what we believe um, has happened is that this variant in this cold receptor has likely contributed to adaptation to increasingly cold environments as humans migrated to higher and higher latitudes. So that selection was stronger and stronger in higher latitudes, so the allele has reached higher and higher frequencies um, in higher latitudes. And this has generated 
this gradient that we observe today. We continue working on this, uh, on this example, but we're pretty convinced that uh, this is true. Now, what is interesting in humans is that actually the derived allele, so the allele that has high frequency at high latitudes, increases cold sensitivity. So this is the opposite of what you see in other animals. Um, and what my personal opinion is that what probably has happened is that humans are metabolically not adapted to living at very cold environments. So it is possible that if you live in a place where it gets cold quickly, you need to be very sensitive to this because you need to metabolically adapt or maybe behaviorally adapt, right? Maybe the penguins don't have to do this, but we do. Um, so even though I don't have proof of that, I think it's very likely that what happens is that you need to be more sensitive to cold and knowing that it's coming if you, if you live in places where it's gonna become very cold. Now, an interesting um, association of this gene is that the allele that has high frequency in Europeans is associated with increased risk of migraine. So which means individuals that have, um, that have this allele have higher risk of migraine. I mean, migraine is a very complex uh, disease. It is multifactorial and, and there are a lot of environmental factors. But it is true that um, this SNP contributes to your risk. And actually, populations that have a higher frequency of this allele have higher prevalence of migraine. Um, of course, again, it's a very complex uh, disease, but probably this has some effect. So what we believe might have happened is that we have this adaptation that has increased cold sensitivity, and as a side effect, this is not, nobody wanted this to happen, but as a side effect, has increased the frequency of migraine in some human groups. Just because on top of helping you feel the cold, maybe this SNP increases your risk of migraine. Um, so very quickly, I want to touch on cold habitats because of course, I mean, I told you about Finland, but I mean, there are places that are much colder than that. Uh, this is uh, in Greenland, for example, that's the average temperature, and there are actually people that live there year-wise. So you could ask, how does TRPM8 look like there? Well, it doesn't look particularly, particularly striking. And actually, some of our, our colleagues have studied genetic adaptations in the Inuits, I think believing that one would find adaptations to cold. But actually, if you study them, what they find is the strongest signatures of adaptation are in fat genes. So fat genes are fatty acid denaturases. And we believe that this is an adaptation to a diet that is very, very rich in fish and other, um, other mammals that has a lot of that type of fatty acids and it has very little fresh produce, so fruits and vegetables. So there's an excess of some types of fatty acids and a deficit of other ones. And, and what um, uh, my colleagues believe is that there has been an adaptation to the diet um, and actually, these mutations that they identify are associated with a number of traits that they believe protect from cardiometabolic uh, disease when you have this type of diet, diet that people that are not adapted to it would have really cardiovascular issues with. So maybe they are protected from that. But I still find it interesting that the strongest uh, selective forces that one sees in the Inuit is not on the temperature, but it's on the diet. And actually, 
when people have gone and, try, and tried to identify adaptations to very extreme environments, so extremely high altitudes, for example, in the Tibet, or living where you are fishing and you have to spend a lot of time underwater to fish, where that's a very important part of the diet of the population, they do see these types of very strong adaptations um, in these populations. So it's clear that not only kind of colonizing the world, but also colonizing these very special, very difficult to inhabit uh, habitats or territories, there has been genetic adaptation uh, to those. And those, of course, are part of the genomes of the people living there. Um, so just to, to finish, to wrap up, um, some conclu conclusions here. So how did uh, genetic adaptation help humans colonize the globe? Well, we know that human populations are highly homogeneous. This is the most, you have to take one thing from this, is that we are very similar to each other, um, both genetically in our genes and phenotypically in our traits. Still, as humans migrated around the world, uh, local positive selection allowed them to adapt to their novel environments, and this has been really critical in our ability to colonize the world, I believe. And this has resulted in key adaptations to different climates, to diets, pathogens, and so on. And in addition, there is a specialized genetic adaptation that have allowed humans to colonize even extreme environments that are very difficult to live in, at least for a mammal that has evolved um, as a species in Africa. Now, I think it's also important to recognize that these evolutionary events live today as differences among individuals and among populations in important traits including disease. So as I said before, if you have two populations that have differences at the genetic level in particular genes, those genes are involved in disease, you're going to see differences in disease risk between these populations. And of course, most of the differences, um, medical differences between populations are not genetic, are due to environmental factors, but the ones that are genetics are something that we can understand and perhaps do something about. It's, it's important to understand them. So I believe that the study of genomes using evolutionary population genetics is a critical tool to better understand human evolution and also has important effects on not only evolutionary history but also the people uh, living today. So it is, I think it's important that we start linking human evolution with our understanding of disease um, across populations. And I'll just finish with that, um, thanking UCL, which is my current institution, and um, I'll be happy to take any questions if you have any.